Welcome to Bizarro Aficionado. Please, just try and relax. It will only hurt worse if you resist. This is Gaz, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 5. A little bit of change on this one. Uh, I'd originally slated uh, Adam Garightly to be on the show, and he was. And it was a great show, till my hard drive ate it. Man, and I always back these up. Always. Goes right onto the external drive, and because I had the studio area kind of all torn apart, putting in the new mics and the mixer and stuff like that, and I dropped the ball. Yeah, I dropped the ball, but that's okay. We still have a show and a great show, but I must put out a little bit of a caveat. Today, we're going to talk to Mortellus. Uh, they are a necromantrix, a mortician, a gardenerian priestix, a medium, and the list goes on. And we talk very seriously about some very touchy topics surrounding death. The preparation of bodies, of rituals, of industry standards, and just our, our, our her and I's own interactions with death and how it affects us. And it, it could be a very triggering show for some. So I want to put that out there that if you're okay with these things, we're super happy to have you. And if it's not something you're ready to talk about or to listen to or to be a part of right now, we completely understand. Put this episode away and come back to it, you know, maybe down the road or something. But it is a great, great episode. And uh, I think you're going to really love it. Uh, Get a little housekeeping out of the way. Uh, There are some new things. We're on YouTube if you haven't seen that yet. So go on, check that over. All the past interview shows are on YouTube. I didn't put any of the the news article shows on there because, come on, you guys hate them. Just be honest. Just tell me. You hate them. It's not where we want to be. But they're on there and they're fun. If you need a laugh, go check them out. But uh, all the interview shows will be on YouTube. And eventually video content and shorts and things like that. So definitely keep an eye on that and subscribe. And again, we're happy to have you there. Uh, Also, we have a phone number. So 302-709-1209. It is through Google Voice. So you can call the show, leave a message, tell me a story, tell me something that's happened to you, tell me I suck. Uh, Anything, tap, 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 is this thing on, to get you guys talking. So if you would like to call and leave a story or leave a message, maybe I'll play it on a future episode. That would be very fun. But again, you don't want to hear me babble, so let's get into the show and talk to Mortellus. See you on the other side. 
Welcome back, everyone. My guest on this episode is High Priestix of the Coven of Leaves in, Nor in Western North Carolina. They're also a mortician, an author, medium, and necromantrix. Their book of pagan death rites and rituals for Llewellyn, Do I Have to Wear Black? Ritual Customs and Funerary Etiquette for Modern Pagans, was released this year. Please welcome Mortellus. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on. We have so much cool stuff to talk about. I uh, I received your book, and I don't know how to <laughs> how to say it quite, but it's for a long time I haven't personally found inspiring pagan works out there in Wicca of any type, and that that maybe I just missed them, but this has to be one of the most influential books I think has been released in at least a decade, if not more. That means a lot. Thank you. Uh, it's just, we as a culture, it seems, more than I think many other cultures, want to hide death. We want it to go away. We want it to be over there and out of sight. And it needs to be discussed now more than ever. We're, we're in a time where we're seeing death on TV daily all the time whether it's covid19 or or uh um shooter attacks etc et and you got buildings falling on people the oh, ocean right <laughs> yeah, the ocean catching fire so it's 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 a rough time and i think this book talks about death in such a accepting and loving way that it was a book that's 100% needed right now but um, I, you are so many things, mortician, author, medium. How did this all begin for you? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I, I always, my spouse jokes that if I, ha, if I truly had a business card that had everything on it, that it would be sort of like a roll of toilet paper. I'd grab the end and it would just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> that I believe. I'm one of those people, I think, that just... I don't know. Other people do like Duolingo or like binge watch Netflix. And I lay awake at 2 a.m. like taking random Red Cross certifications. I just like learning stuff, you know, like <laughs> no joke. I, I yeah. have like I have mountains of ridiculous like skills that I just learned because I wanted to. Like I'm a I'm a court stenographer. I'm, I'm a, a notary public. I'm a locksmith. I'm a Kodak certified photo developer. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I uh, yeah, I just like learning things. Like why yeah. not? Why not? Why? Oh, absolutely. You've got to like improve your your apocalypse resume. Of no, a hundred percent. I always joke, and I hope everyone listening will know that I'm kidding a lot, and that like. If you are experiencing suicidal thoughts, please call and get help. Message yes. me on Facebook and I'll talk to you at two in the morning. I don't mind. But um, I always joke that it's like the best anti-suicide technique for me is like to think to myself whenever I'm having a tough moment, like, is my obituary cool enough yet? Yeah. <laughs> that is great. <laughs> I have to like, I don't know. I can't. Uh, yeah, no, I should climb one more mountain. Right. I got to do one more thing yeah. before. And that just, I don't know, it fuels me. It keeps me going, just constantly trying to think about myself in terms of the stories someone might tell about me one day. And maybe that's, like, super fucking egotistical and crappy. <laughs> I don't know. No, I, just, I, I think that that could be a beautiful tattoo trend. 
coming up now, you know, with that kind of a comment to ask yourself. Right. I think we've all been there at some point in some level. And right. I think that's just a great way to look at it. You know, it's, it's is my obituary cool enough? Cool yet? enough, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. I don't think it is. Do I want to die as like the person who got like a Guinness World Book of Records for being the most tattooed hundred-year-old person? I'm like, I don't know. I might want right? that. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna have some cool old people in about another thirty years. Sure, fucking hope so. Yeah, I, right. <laughs> I want to be in the nursing home where we don't do bingo night. We have like D and D night. That's going to be right. Oh my gosh. That would be great. And I tell my spouse and I, we always joke with each other that like, we hope that we become just dementia adult enough to confuse our D and D games with reality. Like <laughs> telling our grandchildren about that time we fought a dragon and they'll be like, I don't know, grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I was an EMT for years, and when I would do transport instead of 911, sometimes we would get patients, and on their chart it would say, pleasantly confused. And I'm like, well, they've won. Me too. (laughs) That's where I want to end up. Pleasantly confused, laughing at everyone. They have won. That's the best way to be right now. I did not have the ocean being on fire on my 2021 bingo card. So, like, if I could <laughs> no. slip on over to Pleasantly Confused, that'd be awesome. I, I don't know what was more disturbing, that the article telling me about that or me going, oh, ocean's on fire. I, I know. I, <laughs> I saw the video and it, there was a comment on it. You, you, never, everyone listening, never read comments. Never on, read the comments. Never read the comments, particularly on Facebook. Yes. If, if you think that the height of human depravity is like YouTube comments, oh, no. pick any news page on Facebook and read the public comments. Like that's, that's it's a mess. That's the worst. It is the worst. It is the worst. But some comment was like, "Is this CGI?" And I had to go, "No, obviously not." <laughs> no, because the ocean's on fire. And I I have to like. If you're familiar with lucid dreaming at all, it, mm-hmm. I love lucid dreaming. It's one of those awesome places where magic really crosses over with science. I love it. Yes. So you get a, you get a few things at play. It's I like doing like the math problems in my head. Like if if X then Y, right? So right. If we look at dream space as a place, a la Neil Gaiman, Sandman, etc., but also like the ancient Greeks worked a lot with dream space as as like a plane of existence, like a liminal space, right? Right. So we've got that over here. We also have a lot of foundational practice that says dream space is a place the dead can interact with very easily. I use this analogy. You might not know how to interact with a dead person or get to the underworld, and they don't really know how to get to you, but you've both been to a Waffle House in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. <laughs> you could meet it, right? Like, the dreams are, are the shitty Waffle House you both know how to get to. That's right. how Oh, that's a, that's fantastic. Especially since I've been to a Waffle House, I think, in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. I mean, who I <laughs> all going to that, like, that neat knife shop there? That's what everyone's doing. Every, right. Just, just on the way to <laughs> Pigeon oh, Forge. Like, I yeah. guess random shout out to those guys. I know. Um, <laughs> But we'll, have to, we'll put it in links. Everyone can That's go get it. their catalog and like drool over pocket knives or something. Right. 
But um, if dream space is a space where we can interact with the dead and the dead can interact with us and it's a place, even if you look at interacting with magic as some kind of like Jungian psychology, you know, delving into whatever, blah, blah, blah words, no matter how you look at magic, dreams are useful, right? Right. And if you look at controlling dreams and interacting with them as a place where you might summon up a deceased person in memory and interact with them physically, visually, audibly in front of you, that can be super fucking useful if you're grieving or or doing magical work, right? Right. So lucid, lucid dreaming is awesome. It's an awesome technique that you can teach yourself. And it works for like 70 something percent of the people that attempt to learn it. And there's a couple of great ways to do that, which totally connect back to where we started with the ocean being on fire. I promise. Um, One of the methods to teach yourself to lucid dream is called the reality testing method. Okay. And in that method, you just at any point during your day, I do this dozens of times a day. You just say, am I dreaming? And you do something that probably would not work correctly in a dream, like flip a light switch on or off, um, spin anything, uh, pick up a book and look at words because right. words don't work properly in books and dreams, right? Uh, right? Spinning objects don't always stop spinning. The light doesn't always come on. Uh, looking at a reflection doesn't always work. So you, you test reality. You try something. If you do it enough during your day, your mind will teach itself to do it all the time, which means mm. you'll be dream and you'll do it. And that's when you realize, oh, I, this is not reality. I'm not awake. Oh, that's great. So testing reality is fun. And back to our previous point, sometimes we see, we <laughs> see things like ocean on fire and it's like, I have to reality test. <laughs> yeah, oh, oh <laughs> yeah. Yeah, more than ever anymore. <laughs> I, I have uh, to remind myself that in 2020, uh, a whale just like fell from the sky into the Amazon rainforest and everyone forgot that happened because it was like the tiniest piece of news that occurred. <laughs> oh my God. I had forgotten that happened. Right. You just... I need to find the, like a sound bite of that news report. Cause, right. it, uh, yeah, we don't know. And then it just went away. <laughs> no one talked about it again at all. Yeah. Right. <laughs> wow. I gotta look that up. A friend was saying the other day that like it feels like we're living in a moment that a time traveler tried to <laughs> tried to fix <laughs> and totally <laughs> screwed up. <laughs> and it's I'd like to I'd like to apologize for that. Um, like uh, murder hornets just sort of stopped being a thing, right? Like we stopped talking about it. So yeah. you look at the ocean being on fire, and you're like, they saved us from those, but at what cost? <laughs> <laughs> and there was this meme out, and it was just this alien like sacked out on a couch watching tv and then it had like the tv saying on this episode of earth and the and the alien just goes <laughs> murder hornets <laughs> it's beautiful. it is I'm, I'm being a bad guest because i did not even answer your goddamn question <laughs> oh that's okay it's okay we got we got time <laughs> we're good how did, how did i get here i guess i guess i grew up with a shit family in an evangelical quiverful cult who went, oh, Lord. you look like what we call a girl. Uh, your life is going to be terrible. Oh, You're yeah. also redheaded and left-handed. Oh. <laughs> you had all the fun. I had so much fun that I'm going to laugh at. Otherwise, I right. will like, break down right now. It's terrible. 
you yeah, have to have it. Yeah. And I, even uh, my, yeah. my father was born left-handed and, mm-hmm. uh, teachers beat it out of him, smack uh, his hands every time he would use it. it. It's crazy that that, that was within, you know, my dad's lifetime. That's so right. recent. This is a uh, supposed trigger warning for anyone listening, but I, uh, my parents broke my left hand so that I would learn <sighs> to write the other one. So. Oh my God. That's, that's madness. Yeah, I, bad things happened to me as a kid, and I won't talk about them too much because it's just, yeah. it's awful, and no one, no, I, I don't. Truly understand. Yeah, I just don't like to think about it too much or give it energy. No, no, not when there's so many beautiful things ahead. Right. You know, I, but, I, oh, go ahead, please. I was just going to say, I guess kind of the, the takeaway from that was, you know, growing up in this space where there was all this expectation about, what I was, who I was, what I was supposed to be, what my life was supposed to be. And just on top of that, in that particular environment, the, the general consensus was that, that women, air quotes, air quotes, women, hmm. um, shouldn't be educated. You know, you were supposed to have babies and cook, right? right? Like that's your life. Um, so it, there was all this like purposeful ignorance around me. I taught myself to read as a kid and that was, that mm. did not actually go over well. Wow. Me being able to read, which is madness, but, um, I've always been a curious kind of person. And I think when I ran away at 17, my first thought was I'm going to learn everything because fuck them. That was my, yeah. thing, was I was just going to learn stuff. Yep. <laughs> I'm, I guess that makes me boring, but, uh, no, no. Cause I, that's something I instill in my kids is do not lose that curiosity because all oh, your yeah, curiosity killed the cat. I refuse to ever say that phrase around my kids. Please be curious, ask questions, disagree, know why you're disagreeing and have an argument, but yeah, be out there, learn. You know, I, I can't stress that enough because when that ends, the civilization is over. I don't know. I don't like not saying stuff like that to my kids if I yeah. know they're here it anyway. Like, I think the important context for the curious cat is that the cat has nine lives, you know? Right. Cat can be curious about something that's going to kill it if it knows it will survive. Yeah, that's true. The real message there, I think, is knowing what you're capable of. Yeah, yeah. That that's what I want my kids to know. Survive. That's and great. Know your capability. Know the limitations of who you are and push yeah. them every day. Push them to your death because life is short and fragile. Oh. I have I have embalmed I embalmed a person once. They they died literally walking in their door. Oh. They they this person was younger than I am now, had gone out for groceries got home. They, they survived all the like driving in a car and all the like groceries, like all the things that might've killed them that day. They right. They got home. They put the key in the door. They took a step over the threshold and tripped and simply fell to the floor in front oh of gosh. a family member and broke their neck. That's oh. what killed them. My God. I was like, uh, Dr. Atkins, the guy who designed the Atkins diet. He tripped. He's, like tripped over a crack in the sidewalk, fell, hit his head, got a brain bleed and died. Yeah. But That's... then, but then we have stories like the, the person and forgive me, I can't recall their name, but 
uh, there was a plane crash and they were, they were trapped in their seat, which blew apart in the, in the mm. wreckage. Right. But the seat plummeted from height and we're talking like 10,000 feet. I mean, this was a commercial plane. And they plummeted into a swamp. Now, not only did they survive the fall, and they had cuts and bruises and a broken leg, but they weren't found for like five days. Mm. So they survived in the goddamn swamp with alligators and shit before yeah. anybody found out there. But then you can trip to death on your porch. So like, maybe just live your life and do the best mm. you can. Yeah, hundred percent. Every day, just like be the cat, you know, be curious to death. Yeah. Do what you got to do to satisfy your mind now because tomorrow might not come. And if it doesn't, what are you going to do? I mean, Einstein says you're going to take another form. So go live that one as best you can. Right. I There's a there's a chapter in your book where and I can't remember if you said a physicist or just a scientist, but physicist. a physicist should come to your funeral. And that's I love that section. And the things that you suggested the physicists could say to different types of people mourning, I just, science can be beautiful. Who knew, you know? <laughs> it is beautiful. And one of my, my favorite things, uh, I'm, I'm a huge quantum theory nerd, man. I still oh, haven't sure. questioned either, by the way, like how did I get around to doing these things? But whatever. It's behind us now. We have to, we have to let it go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Push it into the ether. We're never going to know. Someone right. will have to listen to other podcasts I've been on for that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> for that boring answer, you can go find it elsewhere. But, um, I'm, I'm writing a book right now about necromantic practice yes. and it's something really dear to me. I care about it a lot. I think it's a practice that we've, shoved into the background for reasons I can't possibly understand. Like uh, there's this book that I'm very fond of uh, Greek and Roman necromancy by Daniel Ogden. Great Mm. book, little spendy, very academic, but if you don't mind something a little dry, it's totally worth reading. Um, But, but Mr. Ogden states in the book that the pressing question at the broad psychosociological level isn't why did ancient people practice necromancy? It's why don't we, Right. That it was so fundamental to life at a point that it's sort of anthropologically confusing that we don't yeah. do it. Absolutely. And yeah, it's the way we look at death as a whole in this culture, in the majority anyway, I, it has to change. It, it has to change. It, it's, I feel that people are becoming not only desensitized to death as a whole, but it's becoming cheapened. You know, it's just not that it's inexpensive, but you know, it's just this, look, I get it done. We, we, we cry. We go home now, now get over it, which I love that part to get over it, which I don't, I don't think grieving ever ends. You know, I, I lost my best friend and it's, I don't know, seven years ago now. And I still have times where I'm like, I want to go out in the woods and talk to Steve. You know, I, yeah. There's, uh, I, I do talk about it in the book, but it's something, one of my huge soapbox issues is telling people to fucking forget the stages of grief by Kubler-Ross. Yeah. You know, that's the most familiar psychological concept in like the world. If you ask somebody to name a concept, that's the one they know. Right. Like, everyone knows that and it's, it's wrong. The five stages of grief. Uh, we're not at all based around grieving people. 
Kubler-Ross was writing about oh, the experiences of dying people, people yeah. who were dying. And it was a very narrow group of people with very similar like social status in um, very culturally narrow places with um, like very specifically similar sort of financial backgrounds. It was like the most white toast experiment. And it anybody that's tried to recreate it has failed. Like it, yeah. it does not pass scientific standards. Like it's a terrible, terrible method. My favorite is the Tonkin method. Okay. The Tonkin method of grief states that grief never changes and it never goes away. First of yeah. all, your your grief is your grief and it's chaotic and imperfect and it's exactly what you need it to be. But pick any object around you right now, something off your desk, a, a cup, a pen, sure. a, something. That object in your hand right now, that's the size of your grief. Now imagine the day that that grief came into being, mm -hmm. you are a container the exact size of that object. Right. Your grief fills it completely. The object will never get smaller. The grief will never get smaller. It will never change shape. It will never be less. But human beings always have a capacity to grow and experience more. Your mind is always creating new pathways and forging new neurons and changing you will get larger around that shape. It will stay the same. It will not ever be smaller. Right. But you won't be the same. And that's what's important. Understanding that you can grow around your grief, that you can make space in your life for happiness. That's what's important. Just like when you eat too much dinner and know there's room for pie. You're going <laughs> yeah. to, the happiness will come, you know? Yeah. But the grief doesn't go away. And I think that's something we have to stop being like a fix it culture. Yeah. Stop looking at grief like something that is bad or broken that we need to like be done with. Like we've repaired that. <laughs> uh, right, right. You Nothing's broken. It's just happy. missing. <laughs> you know? No, like the cooler Ross method is the equivalent of putting a John Cena poster over where your kid punched a hole in the wall like <laughs> <laughs> you fix That's a God. great analogy. <laughs> you did not fix anything. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's uh, it's tough, and I, I, I don't think people even want to know about death. What they want to know, and you, you talk very openly in the book about the process from when someone passes in the hospital to when they're being picked up by a funeral professional on down the line. Could you talk a little bit? about that because I think people need to understand the process I think I mean we could do that for an hour right like oh, right. <laughs> definitely encourage people to go I mean go pick up the book and it, yeah. if you if you can't afford the book call your local library and ask them to pick up copies right. ask them to add it to their electronic resources and in a single phone call you can give access to that book to everyone in your community and that's huge right like right. that's like gifting everyone a copy yeah libraries are awesome definitely they are indeed but go read it and check that stuff out but i think <clears throat> i'm losing my voice i'm so sorry oh it's okay 
<laughs> You're going to have to cut out all my frogginess. Hang on. No, no problem. <clears throat> I'm chugging juice. Maybe that will make it better. <laughs> Nevertheless, reset. Hard reset. Yeah, like we could we could talk about that topic for ever. We could spend yeah. the rest of the doing that, and no one will want to listen to us do it. So definitely no, no. go go read <laughs> and make sure make sure that you're listening to people that want to tell you things in a way that's useful to you, right? And maybe that's not me, and I accept that, and that's fine, and that's great for you to know who it is important for you to listen to. But everyone has biases, right? <laughs> like, right. My bias is that I'm pagan, first of all, right. um, that I'm, I am a funeral industry. I, I hesitate to use the word professional because that implies that I like am even licensed right now or like make <laughs> money, which is not accurate. Oh. I graduated and immediately was thrust into a pandemic where it's like all hands on deck. Everyone's volunteering, like right. do your residency later. <laughs> oh, that's, man. A, that's a terrifying place to be, but. No, like I'm, you know, I am an industry person and I am pagan and I'm, I'm very pro embalming for very specific reasons, which I will happily elaborate on. But sure. like those things, it's important to know what my biases are, right? When you're reading these things, but it's also important that if you're going to go out there and look something up, like for example, ask a baker, which is in no way meant to imply a specific thing you might be listening to about death. <laughs> that, right. You know that that person might have biases like being extremely anti-embalming or not being pagan or, for example, not actually being a trained embalmer at all. Right. Some of the loudest voices we have out there right now are not actually morticians. That is important. Yeah. I might not have a license yet, but I'm trained in doing that work. I've sure. been work. So when you're listening to things like Ask a Mortician on YouTube, it's important to remember that that person is a funeral director. Right. That's a certificate you can get in six months. <laughs> it's, not, yeah. it's not the same kind of education. And when you're getting all your facts about embalming from them, like you're probably not getting the right set of details. So that's important. But why am I all about it? One, I think that it's a deeply spiritual kind of ritual. To we associate that act with chemicals and not the acts right. themselves. Embalming is an act. It's a series of actions that might not involve chemicals at all. So yeah, that's true. Um, just the person arranging you and bathing you and like making sure your eyeballs stay closed. So you don't right. creep out your like nieces and nephews like a <sighs> like a fish in the meat market. <laughs> right. Right. Like that's that is an embalmer's job. That's a mortician's job is to make you be the best you can be for that that moment, so that you you meet your your grave, your disposition, your final destination in the way you would choose. More than anyone else you'll encounter in in death, the mortician is the person that is going to make sure you get what you want. Funeral director doesn't care. They just want to make sure that the party goes off without a hitch and they sell you a nice <laughs> casket. That's <laughs> right. Right. And I'm trained in that too. So like, there we go. Yeah. But that's an elaborate party planner. That's what that is. Right. <clears throat> the mortician's the person behind the scenes. Actually, 
performing those rituals for your body, putting you in your casket, dressing you in your clothes, washing your hair, doing all those things. That's what we do. So people need to look at that person like an ally. Right. And those people can be your guides in, in green burial and home burial and all those things. They can still be there for you. And you do need that person. Yeah. Because, and this is a hot take and I recognize it might be a shitty one. So like strap in, but <laughs> I think we all have a lot of really romantic ideas about green burial and home burial, but it sort of relies on you like dying peacefully at home and being like a warm, uh, 90 year old grandma who like, right. And everything's peaceful and perfect, but that's not reality. The reality is you might die in a car wreck and be a thousand pieces or have a heart attack in your thirties and the state requires you to have an autopsy. Sure. And sure, your family can go pick up your body from the Emmy's office after your autopsy and take you home and have a home burial if you're zoned for that. Right. Or give you a green burial if you can afford that because green burial spaces are outrageous given our capitalistic society. Sure. Um, but sometimes autopsy requires that you be involved, which disqualifies you from green burial space in most instances. Huh. So these are factors that you have to think about. And another factor is like you can put in your, in your will all day long that you want to be, I want to have a home burial. I want to have a green burial or whatever. Right. But let's say you do die in that car wreck and you're in a dozen pieces or you do need an autopsy. Do you really want to make your loved ones go pick that up from the morgue? <laughs> right, right. We have to think, we yeah. have, everybody listen, please. We have to think about how our wishes are affecting our loved ones. hundred percent. So your loved one can go to the ME's office and ask to pick up your body, but do you want them to be handed a plastic bag with your organs in it? No. Do you want them to see you that way and have right. to see that in their mind forever? That's cruel. Yeah. Cr Choose it for yourself. Choose to do that for someone because you want to do it for them, but don't, don't put that on your loved ones. Right. And I, I don't think a lot of thought goes into that. Into, it doesn't. You know, how does it? I, I don't want my loved ones putting out $8,000 to bury me, my no. my shell. You know, I I specifically, and I need to write it down into a living will, but or just a will in general that I just, I don't want all that. Just don't embalm me. And maybe you'll change my mind on that because I want to hear your opinion on that. Just straight to cremation and everyone can have some if they want some and put it where it means something to them. Totally teachable moment here. Totally Yay, teachable. good. But you were just saying that you put it in your living will or your will. Right. So li living will is not the right document, obviously. Oh, you know right, that. right. Yes. Like medical choices. Your will is not the right document either, people. Everyone oh, listening. Okay. Because your will is not read until several days after oh, you've done True. They need that immediately. They need that information right now. So you want an advanced directive, which you can fill out for yourself. You want to write those wishes down and assign them to a loved one. Figure out who your next of kin is. I put that map in my book for you. Um, assign them the, those details, and then you'll know for sure that um, they're in the, in the right place when the time comes. Excellent. 
But to uh, to your comments, burial doesn't have to be expensive. Okay. It is, and it can be. But if you wanted to be buried, I mean, pick a pick a gravesite now. What's stopping right. you? Picking True. one today and buying it yourself. Yeah. We always think about what we're putting on our family, but the problem is that you're putting it on your family. <laughs> right, right. <clears throat> know what your wishes are and pay for them now. <laughs> yeah, that's an absolute truth. And another huge thing is people are like, well, my loved ones will use my money when I'm gone. Well, that's also not true, and that's terrible for them because right. unless they are jointly on your accounts, which if you're getting up in years, that's a great thing to do is just like right. put a younger loved one on your accounts. So they have immediate access, but um, they are absolutely not going to have access to your funds or anything until the death certificate is returned and sent to your financial institution, which can take as much as six months. Oh, wow. So fixing your shit after you die is just going to come right out of their pocket. It's yeah. terrible. <clears throat> but, yeah, pick out pick out a burial site today and buy just buy it if that's what yeah, you want. Yeah, absolutely. Possess it like a piece of land, and it's like it could be very cheap depending on what you choose. If you want like some, you want to be buried in Hollywood forever, it's probably going to be expensive. If you want to be like a plot in your small town under a tree, it might be six hundred dollars. Just like figure it out. Right? Yeah, because that's that's more what I would want if I was going to be buried. Just. I'd love to be just propped up against a tree and left alone, but again, you, by the to find. Could, okay. You could have that if you donated your body to a body farm. Just let them know that you'd like to be under the trees. Can you do that? You can tell them to within certain limits of kind of how you would like to go. You can put yeah. the note there. They yeah. don't. They don't technically legally have to abide by it, but sure. I'm friends with lots of those people, and when there are requests like that, they they tend to honor them. They do care a lot. Wow, that is great. That's yeah. great to know, yeah. Because that's, as long as I can remember back to even being a little kid, I'm just like, why Why do I have to be in a box? Yeah, don't I, you sound like a perfect candidate for a body farm. Like, yeah, no, that sounds great. Message me after the fact, and I'll tell you the one closest to you and get you the form. Oh, so. that would be wonderful, yeah. And then after you have decayed and you are nothing but bones, your bones will be cleaned and cataloged, and then future students can study them in osteological study. So that's perfect. I spent the early part of my life as an archaeologist working in graves and put a lot of bones in boxes. I think it's fitting that my bones go into a box. Yeah, that's great. So see, yeah. we've already we figured out what your thing is. That's great. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. I love I love body farms. The anthropological research facilities are awesome. They, For anyone listening who's unfamiliar, the, the basic premise is that uh, your remains will be placed in a circumstance. You might be just laid on the ground. You might be put up in the limbs of a tree. You might be propped under a tree. You might be enclosed in the trunk of a car. Whatever. They want to try at the time. Yeah. And students catalog every day. They go out there and check multiple times a day. They look at the state of things. They look at how things progress. They take photographs. They take notes. Um, they watch things like the weather, insect activity. And what they want to understand is the process of decay and the timeline of decay in different environments. And what that helps them do is solve 
murder cases. Right. It also helps them determine time of death. If they can go, this body in this circumstance was found, you know, we have an understanding of how decay occurs in that environment, then they can determine when that person died, how they died. So you're really helping a lot of people when you donate to the body farm. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Yeah, I'll definitely do that because that, I didn't know if you had, you know, any control, whether, you know, you'd be put through a wood chipper or, <laughs> you know, end up in a trunk or. Probably not going to be put through a wood chipper. They're not really learning much from that. No, I can't imagine. No. They're <laughs> <laughs> not learning much from that. No. No. No, that's great. And a lot of them are doing really specific sorts of studies. Like the body farm at Cullowee does a lot of, uh, they do a lot of vulture type studies. So they Ooh. have an area that other wildlife can't get into mm-hmm. where, um, only birds have access to your body. Cause they kind of want to watch and see how that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. It's almost like a sky burial. Correct. Yes. I recommend that a lot to people who have wanted a sky burial. Now, is that, do they, do that at all in the states is there ever a place that's come out that has offered that it's only available in very narrow circumstances uh, for like indigenous tribes right right but a lot of people advocate for more broadly defined death rituals since they are currently very narrowly defined toward christianity so that that is a big soapbox for me but now, how do we how do we work on that besides your book, which I think is going to make a huge difference? How do we expand this so that different cultures, religious ideals other than the mainstream um, can be more of an open thing to discussion? And I do you think there's a lot of limit in that from uh, funeral directors, things like that? Do you think there's like a discrimination there? I think that it's one of those things where sure yes there's a lot of conscious sort of discrimination and bias but i think a lot of it is built into the culture right it's like the problem of racism where it's so ingrained in the society that you can't can't see the edges of it and i think that's true a lot of times for um christian influences in certain areas and and the funeral industry is certainly one of those areas yeah and one thing i always say to people and i I don't think people really think about this at all, but if we're going to, if we're going to broach the topic of racism as well, I want everyone out there to remember that the funeral industry is one of the few remaining vestiges of segregation. And if mm. you don't think that's true, I want you to think to yourself right now of which funeral home in your town is the black funeral home. That's so true. Yeah. Yep. Hmm. No, absolutely. I, I can think of it right now, in fact, and it's, uh, yeah, and it's just, some, it, that's just how it is, right? And, yeah. Well, it's, it's got, it's got to stop. There's so much here. It's got to stop. We're backpedaling, you know, it, which I never thought would be possible because we never pedaled all that far to begin with. And we're still, it's like, you know, backpedaling into the sixties. No, we were just doing like the electric slide from one end uh, to the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. You're a shit country. And like, oh, my God. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm not I'm the only one who says it. It's Alienating all your listeners. I'm so sorry. I, there's a lot of them outside the country, so I bet there's a lot of them going, yep, <laughs> that's 100% true. 
for everyone listening from outside of America, a lot of us here are embarrassed. <laughs> oh, completely embarrassed and, and ashamed. Completely but embarrassed. Uh, you know, and I, when, when you get in farther into your book, which was incredibly fascinating, you go into you know, a select number of, of um, pagan traditions and you, you kind of give suggestions and ideas for how to uh, perform rituals and, and even to be an observer to some of those. And I thought that was, it was so neat. And there's definitely, there was even a couple of traditions there that, you know, I had, you, know, you didn't even know were too active, um, like Discordianism and, uh, and the Kemetism. And I thought they were so fascinating, especially, uh, Kemetism. Am I saying that right? Is it Kemet? Kemeticism. Kemeticism. That's it. And uh, I didn't even know there was a huge market anymore for that. But I think even us old grognards, you, you know, who associate everything Egyptian to Golden Dawn, something like that, completely have missed the boat that there's this rising pagan tradition like that. I mean, certainly Kemeticism has been active for ever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> forever and you even have uh, different sects within it like you, you certainly have like your solitary or eclectic comedics yeah. suppose in a lot of ways i fall into that camp because i work with anubis quite a lot so right. I, I i live in that sort of eclectic area but um there's also comedic orthodoxy and that's a whole area right uh, one thing that was really important to me, and I, I'm sure it was obvious to you while you were reading, is I reached out to so many people in all these different communities yes. to just really communicate back and forth with – it's like religion had one job, right? <laughs> it was right, like, right. Having rites of passage is kind of a thing, and they really let us down in the death area in pagan communities. It's We have these aging generations of – Oh, pagans from the you know fifties and sixties—they're all dying off, and they didn't leave us with anything. Sure. <laughs> we're kind of we're kind of in the shit now. So I, <laughs> I sat down and I, I thought to myself that you know, we we seem to have this idea as pagans that if we need a ritual to do like a cord cutting for our cat or what I'm just making things up, right? Sure. sure. <laughs> if, if you need a ritual for a thing and you don't have it, then you, what do you do? You make one, well, you make yeah. it exist. That's what we do. We manifest things. We create, we craft. I think people leave out the crafting part of the witch. Oh, sure. We make stuff. But, but when it came to death, it's like, it's like we forgot that that's something we do. And I wanted to fix that. And I, I watched on the one hand, I'm in the, I'm in the pagan community. I'm sort of watching how people respond to death and that's broken in its own way. And then I'm sure I'm looking at funeral industry and I, I'm watching how they respond to the pagan community. And that's also fucking broken. Oh and yeah. We needed something to bridge the gap. And that, that's what I hoped this book could be. At least I know I'm not an author. I'm not a writer. Everyone listening should know that. I didn't mean to be doing this at all. And, and I'm glad when, you're doing more of it, by the way. I, I have enjoyed writing. I know. Yeah. But <clears throat> I don't know. I was, I was walking through classrooms one day or labs and, and whatnot. And there were some people talking about having attended a Wiccan funeral or having served at one. 
And this caught my attention. They didn't know who I was and they didn't know I was pagan. So I was able to stand in the background like a scientist with a notepad, right? Like <laughs> <laughs> observing the situation. And the, one of the people was talking about, yeah, the, they saw the priestess in her black robes and this, that, and the other thing. And it, it was creepy. It gave them the willies. And I'm thinking to myself, I've been to a million and one rituals and I guarantee you that priestess was just wearing whatever they had that they liked that was black for a funeral. Right. Guaranteed. Right. <laughs> yeah. And they're over here talking about like they showed up in a hooded robe with like a flavor flav sized pentagram on her. Jeez. That's how TV sees pagans right. though. You know, it's ridiculous. One of them said to the other, and this really stuck with me. I mean, man, sometimes you'll hear a phrase in your life. Somebody will say something and it will be one of those that just permanently burns itself into your mind. And this was one of those moments because they turned to the other person and said, if I go to a Wiccan funeral, do I have to wear black? And that <laughs> broke my brain because I thought to myself, everybody everywhere wears black to funerals. That's right. What that's just the thing you do. It's, it's just a common color of mourning in the United yeah. States. But why is it evil or spooky or satanic if a pagan person is doing it? Why is it ordinary <laughs> and right. respectful and okay for everyone else? Do we yeah. have to make a performance of being light and acceptable and approachable? What is the difference? What is the distinction here? And, and that Fear. means stuck with me a lot and i i found myself thinking that if that was the kind of questions people had even if i thought it was a stupid question if i thought it was fucking dumb as hell yeah. <laughs> if this is the question you have i will answer it for you so in that moment i said well i know you did not know this but i'm a witch by the way right i got the face <gasps> <laughs> Um, and, uh, no, you do not have to wear black. Just like any funeral, you can wear right. what you find to be appropriate for the environment you're in. And they backpedaled and they were embarrassed. Sure. Because it was clear that they understood immediately the mistake that they had made. Yeah. But we have to answer terrible questions with compassion. Oh, Absolutely. If you can meet meet that with compassion, then it shares compassion, and that right. that's the only way we'll get through this because they're they're scared. That's what breeds us. Different things scare some people. And I think I I know I know that when you're writing, there's there's sort of this rule you're you're supposed to know who you're talking to and speak to your audience, right? Right. I did not do that. <laughs> For anyone who's picked up that book, you, you will very quickly catch on to the fact that I wrote to nearly 20 different audiences. And that's apparently a very bad thing to do, but I, I'm told I accomplished it, but. You did. And, and I don't know why that's a bad thing to do because. You're supposed to know who you're speaking to and what you're trying yeah, to say. But, and, but I, you're speaking to the wide audience. You know, you're, you're, you're speaking to the, the macro rather than the micro. I didn't want to write a book that was by a pagan for a pagan to read. Right. And I didn't want to write a book that was by a pagan for funerary 
workers to read. And I didn't want to write a book that was by a funerary person to be able to read. And I didn't want to write a Wiccan book. You said that earlier is the best Wiccan book you have picked up. I don't. Right. I never want people to look at it like that ever. And that's what probably makes it so good. You you have a kindness in your writing that's like early Scott Cunningham. Oh, someone you know? else to me this week, and that's oh, that's great. I, like yeah. be impressed, feel bad about it. I don't know for sure, but hopefully, no shade to Scott Cunningham. Hopefully, I have like better citations. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> most definitely. <laughs> In there, hearts, hearts to Scott Cunningham. They yes. did a lot for our history, but um, no, I never wanted people to look at it like it was a Wiccan book or a pagan right. book, funeral book. I wanted people to see themselves in it and find people that they loved in it. And I wanted, I wanted it to be for a heathen, and I wanted it to be for a Discordian, and I wanted it to be for all the people that we think aren't very active anymore, so we leave out and. That's the only way that we help each other and and heal bonds between communities that I think we just ignore, and that's terrible. I, I wanted anyone to pick it up and find something they needed or could use or apply to someone else. I wanted a guest at a funeral who was afraid and didn't know what to expect to see words that, that would put them at ease, and I wanted a funeral director to know how to better serve these families. And I wanted a coven leader, for example, to know how to help someone through their grief. I wanted those things to be there for someone when yeah. they need them. And it's, it, you, you've accomplished that because the, the book is so encompassing and it, it, it's chapters on, you know, death and then different traditions of, of you, know, you can apply to that whether like you said whether it's heathenism or or traditional british or however and then it, it's funny that through all these beautiful ones and i find discordian and i'm like oh there it is that <laughs> if i'm having anything done it's here i just come have a drink stay go doesn't right. matter do do what you need to do and to connect and to feel connected and then to let go and move on. But it was absolutely beautiful. And it, it really tied in because I had just had uh, Adam go rightly on. Um, and we were talking about Carrie Thornley and the rise of Discordianism. So it really kind of kind of fit in the previous shows, too. But the, then the book goes on into you know, dealing with, you know, more uncomfortable deaths, sudden deaths, murders on into child and loss of a child and and it's all handled with with incredible beauty and poise and that's that's so nice to see because usually books on death are either just really morbid or dry or things like that and that's not how your book comes across and i i think no matter what your religious preference i think this book is important to be read i think that and I do have thought, but before I say so, I, I think for your listeners, I mean, there are even rights in there that are Christian and yeah. as well. I mean, so many people live closeted in their faith practices or have none or very theistic, but their family is religious and they wouldn't want to deny the family like a religious service. They're in there for you. Like, yeah, that's in there. But I've never 
I've never really said this to anyone before, so I get, you're getting the scoop, I guess. But <laughs> I do think in a lot of ways the, that this book is sort of subtly or maybe not so subtly political. Yeah. There, there are definitely some things in there that I think people might look at and have a strong reaction to. Either, I can't believe you put that in there because I needed it, or yeah. I can't put that in there, that's terrible, because... You'll notice as I as I talk about Brit Trad, you never see the word priest or priestess. Right. You won't see a gendered term in this book unless I had to use it. Right. You'll find that I treat Discordianism equally to any other religion mm-hmm. is God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you'll see grieving rituals for an abortion because guess right. what? Making the right choice doesn't mean you're not allowed to be sad about it. 100%. That doesn't fade any easier or any less than if that baby was three months and passed away. It's still very hard for the people I know that have gone through that. and Everything. Yeah. Everything I just said are things that I've gotten hate mail about. (laughs) And that's a shame. You know, I have a nasty, nasty male, but it's like I'm I'm pro-life. So I'm mad at you for saluting this life. Or or more like I'm a Brit trad person and uh, you've hidden your like inclusive agenda in there. Oh, <laughs> they, <laughs> the farther we get sometimes from things we don't like, the closer we get to them. Yeah, right. it's uh. It's- it's the horseshoe effect, right? <laughs> it is the horseshoe effect, and it's just—I don't know. It, it's hard I to do, get the arrogance out of human nature, I guess. I do think, though, just sort of talk back to discordianism. I think discordianism made a really great inclusion in this book for kind of a particular reason. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I had to sit down, like surrounded with note cards and string, like a serial killer, and <laughs> like I could put in this right. book because. Llewellyn, bless them, they want a book that's like 60,000 words. And I turned in like 130 and they were like, can you please fucking trim it down to like 100,000 words? <laughs> I took out six. That's the best I can do. We hate you. Why would you? <laughs> we hate you. They did not do that. They were very kind to me despite right. my long-windedness. But I did cut like 35,000 words out of that book. Oh, my goodness. I know. It's crazy. So I'll expect them all back for the, uh, you know, the anniversary edition in a few years. Yes, but there, you know, there was this feeling I had that I had to say all the things, right? Because sure. what if you never get a chance to write something again? What if I trip with my groceries and die? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I have to say all the stuff right now. Yeah. So this is all of that. But I had to decide what traditions to include, and maybe I'll get to do a round two one day and add all those other things. But Yeah. Um, discordianism, I felt really deserved to, to make the cut because A, anyone can identify with it. Two, yes. I don't think it gets the respect it deserves. Not at all. I'm not, I, I would not have defined myself as a discordian before writing that book, but I joke in it that I declared myself the, the discordian minister of death, which I love that everyone <laughs> has just accepted openly. <laughs> yes. That is a fact now. <laughs> Indeed. I love that. That's fun. But um, I'm now a member of a cabal, which I I realize means literally nothing. But <laughs> 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 but yeah, there's this charm to that sort of acceptance. But 
I thought that adding them made an excellent foil for everyone else because it's a perfect example of a religious-based request that might sound completely wacky to a funeral director. Which is right? wonderful. That needs to happen so much more. Look, these are religious requests. These right. are religious beliefs. I can sure. point to this book, Do I Have to Wear Black, that they exist in, and right. see says right here that that is a thing that is real and exists. Right? We can manifest reality by writing a book because we can point to it, and that's important. Right. And that, that was really one of the things that I thought is just beautiful about discordianism because, you know, your funeral director might be arguing with you about your, your weird, like, Wiccan, I don't know, you're wearing black, I guess. And right. <laughs> like, well, at least I'm not discordian and I'm not here in a wedding dress. So, like, shove yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's terrible. I'm being terrible. But no, no, it's true, though. I had, you, oh, no, go ahead. You had asked, though, how do I think we fix it? How do we make this better? Right. And I, you got a couple options for those of you listening. One, go write a better book than I did. Like <laughs> say words and be loud about it, right? Like write yeah. your, your senator, your congressperson and tell them that we, we need to hot take. I guess I'm doing those a bunch today. We need to deregulate the funeral industry and oh, we right. need, it needs to not be a self moderating industry. We need a situation that's more akin to say Colorado where a person could get a part-time job at a funeral home and sort of be in that environment and decide if it was for them, but also have that experience for their life. Sure. And I think those things are really, really important. And regulation has not really demonstrably cut down on, you know, crimes or anything. It's not like that's a huge area in the funeral industry in the first place. But if we look at unregulated areas versus regulated areas, I think it's not measurable. Right. But in the meantime, you know, do what I said before and get your library to pick up this book. Yeah. Get a get a copy if you can afford it and donate it to a funeral home near you or to a you know a hospice or right. hospital clergy because maybe just maybe just seeing that this is something that might be important to people in their area in their hometown um, will encourage them to learn these things and and yeah. be open to them. That's huge. Yeah, then with that will come the change. And I think it will come. I think you're going to see a lot more of what, you know, I assume the mainstream would call alt-religion. But I think you're going to see that rise exponentially in the coming years. And uh, they're, going to, they're going to have to change with time because you're going to have more and more non-Christian burials to perform. You know, just like, you know, then our nursing homes with we'll be playing Pearl Jam instead of, <laughs> you know, the Rat Pack. But we'll have the we'll be the coolest old people ever if we can just get there. We really need to for people in the funeral industry to stop like. You, you've got a toddler, right? And they like close their eyes, put their hands over their eyes. And it's like you can't <laughs> see like that's happening in the funeral industry where. The, the cremation report that came out last year blamed blamed <laughs> the rise in cremation on quote the irreligious. Oh jeez. But that's not reality, right? No. The reality they just asked them to tick a box if they were Christian or not, and they weren't, and they did not assume that anyone else could be any other thing. And that's, that's the ridiculous. Point. And yeah. I 
always very quick to point out in any kind of industry environment that those people are still having funerals. They're still having services. They're still spending the same money. They're still doing all the same things. And if you're just talking about this from a business perspective, the problem here is that they're getting very few services from you and getting the rest of them elsewhere because they don't like you. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> they don't like what you offer. These yeah. families are still getting direct cremation and going on to have a memorial or funeral service with their yeah. fucking in, in their living room. They right. just don't want to use your funeral home chapel with all the like stained glass Jesus around. <laughs> right. Flags. and Right. It still happens. And yeah. I, I always tell people on it. This is important, but there are several Christian sects that it is a rule that they can't have iconography present at services. Right. And you can absolutely claim that if you're having a service at a funeral home, you can tell them we don't want this iconography here and they have to take it down. They will. Oh, that's good. Yeah. They take down flags, paintings, Bibles, cross, whatever's there. Just say, we don't want any of this. Thank you very much. And they will take it down for you. Yeah, that's good. And again, it, it, we need more dialogue. We need people need to more, you know, know their rights, what they can request. Cause there was so much in your book that I'm like, wow, I didn't know you could even ask that, you know? And it, it, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. It definitely changed me reading that. And if, if at very least it's getting me to think, all right, what do I want? And how do I want this to go? And, you know, and what can I take care of now? And so it's all taken care of. And it's, that's beautiful. You know, you were talking about earlier, you said embalming, maybe I would change your mind. And you were, you, right. you threw out the number $8,000 for a funeral. Sure. And I've, a lot of that, of course, would be a burial plot. And yeah. Find, find one and, and buy it. There might be a very cheap one out there. You can buy them from individuals as well, by the way, that like maybe they don't want it anymore or they yeah. move. I have to. There's, I there's think a, we have three or four okay. I need to get rid of. <laughs> so it's, they just keep getting passed down and more and more of my relatives started just getting cremated. They still had, you know, a Christian service and everything, but they're just like, eh, I don't want all that. So you, so there's that but yeah. um and by the way i'm just i'm just putting this out there if you in that circumstance or someone listening in that circumstance you have a plot and you like don't care about reselling it but don't need it consider giving it to a family who's like suffered a tragedy in your area or is going through something and might not have a space right was that's there, a great idea did a building collapse in your neighborhood and a bunch of people died? Reach out and see if someone might need that plot. Or yeah. Might mean the world to someone. You never know. No, that's great. You know, reach out to a funeral home that you know in your area and say, hey, I have this. If there happens to be a family in need that has like circumstances where they can't afford one. Right. Let me know and we'll give it to them. Or, like these are options available to you. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. It's just such a small way to be human and help someone else out in a world that, like, would just totally go overlooked. Yeah, because otherwise they're just just sitting there, just right. wasted. Yeah. So I think there's, yeah, I think I have at least four. So yeah, I think I will do that since they're mine to use now. I think I will absolutely do that in their area, and so you can benefit from them. And if you need help connecting with someone in your area, let me know. Okay. I'll, I'll help you out. Great. Thank but, you so much. 
but just sort of talking about embalming, I wanted to circle back around to what sure. I was saying before. It really is a ritual and it really is a way to provide something comforting to your family because you, you might want to just choose direct cremation, right? You, you made that quip. Right. But you have no idea, like I said before, how your choice might impact someone you love. If you've written it down and that's what you've arranged, that's what will happen. But what if it meant something? It, what if it meant so much to someone in your family to see your face one more time? Sure. And you would want them to have that option. Oh, yeah. And certainly embalming is not required for that. But if you you do direct cremation with like no option for mm-hmm. viewing, if your family wants it, then they just can't have it. And yeah. That's that's a shame. I think I've I've true. definitely I've comforted a lot of people in their grief who would have given anything in the world to see their loved one one more time. Yeah. And but your your embalmer, their job at the end of the day is to be there for your family, to comfort them in a way that no one else can, because making sure that when your family steps in there in the room to see your face one more time that it looks like you. Right. And that might not mean I'll put air quotes around embalming because most people think about embalming as just like some chemicals we put in a person, but that's not true. It's a series of acts, but making you presentable to your family in a way that is comforting might not include that at all. You know, it, it might mean, Makeup, set, right. you know, styling your hair, dressing you, laying you out in your casket. A lot of times for me, it means standing in a cold lab, <laughs> giving right. a deceased person a massage because uh, rigor mortis will release after uh, mm-hmm. rubbing muscles so I can rearrange their body in a more peaceful pose. Oh, that's great. So all of those things can mean a lot to your family, but... If you have to be in storage for a few days before they can see you, there'll be things like postmortem stain, which just simply means your blood isn't moving anymore. So it just it pulls right. in areas mm-hmm. and they make these big purple bruisey areas, which of course it does. Right. Um, as the lactic acid builds up in your muscles a bit because you become more acidic after you die and increasingly right. over time, um, there'll be a bit of discoloration. But the biggest problem is that the bacteria in your gut no longer has anything to do. It's mm. now unchecked. Gotcha. So that bacteria will start doing what bacteria does, which is eating things and growing, which means for bacteria, anybody who's made yeast bread knows that right. it's, what do you get? You, you get bubbles, right? You do. Because they're as a side effect, which will mm-hmm. start to bloat, which will start to swell up your body cavity, which can right. be very unpleasant for your loved ones to see. And um, as an amusing side effect of that can result in terrible things like necrofarts is what yes. I <laughs> Just like They are 100% a thing. Ridiculous, awful gas comes roiling out of your body. But you can run fluids through the body that are non-chemical just to flush out bacteria. You could replace the blood in the circulatory system with water, with glycerin. There are green solutions mm. that essential oils and other things which oh, cut cool. down like a, a lot of them have like uh, vanillin based sort of aldehyde solutions hmm. uh, 
So we run that through and then we do something called aspirating of the body cavity, which means I take a thing that looks like a comically oversized acne brand hypodermic needle. It's huge, yes. like, like a fencing sword. Yes. Mm-hmm. Push it into the abdomen just under the belly button and we have to learn how to blindly puncture each organ. Mm. And what that does is just simply makes a nice opening for those gases to release. Ah, okay. My, my job is to push all those gases out, and I can flush some fluid through there. What I can do is use a reverse aspirator, which just, it's kind of like that thing at the dentist's office they put in your mouth that pushes oh, water right. and it out at the same time. Yeah. So the hydro aspirator, so what we're doing is flushing out bacteria, the contents of your stomach, piss and shit. Right, <laughs> sure. The awful stuff. I saw a student once accidentally pop the hose off and they blew all that into their face. Oh. Was, I saw it coming too, but they were kind of a jerk. So <laughs> you just let it happen, but you know, we'll never do that again. <laughs> oh my God. That's funny. It was like, it was a white guy doing white guy things and none of us were happy with that person anyway. So oh, it's like, no, you had it coming. If you're going to be a smarty pants about what you know more than anyone, I'll just stand quietly over here. <laughs> <laughs> right. And like, I'll wait. Oh, wait. <laughs> I've never seen a person look so disappointed and sad as they did the moment <laughs> that hit their face. <laughs> and, and how much joy did that, give, did that give your heart to watch that? I had like, to go up to the hall and because I thought it was so bad. I, just, I picture that person's spirit somewhere just going, <laughs> I'm glad I could help. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, for sure. But nevertheless, so we, we yeah. do that. Your aspirator, we rinse everything out and all that stuff. Just make sure that you don't bloat or get smelly or look weird for your family. So your eyes aren't all sunken. I might I, some... I cover all these every time I visit my family. I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, I'm sorry. I threw you off. <laughs> ordinarily, there might be eye Oh, I'm losing you. Oh, there you are. Hello? Oh, no, there you are. Perfect. Lost ah, you for a bit. <laughs> I, think... I can't tell who bad connection. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I think there's uh, there's some pretty good storms around me, so I think that's probably cutting us out. Same here. We've got that hurricane coming. But oh, gosh, that's right. I... Oh, that's right. I keep. I always think that you're more up Tennessee, but, yeah, you're North Carolina, so that's – uh. You're right down there in the thick of it. I'm near near Asheville, yeah. Oh gosh. Right. How big is that now? Uh, it's pretty big. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it was up to a five yet or or uh-huh. what, but I know it's building. Last I checked, it wasn't. But oh, maybe, good, good. Maybe. But good. Uh, you know, as, as I was saying, you just um, 
we might take um, an eye cap, which sort of looks like an Easter egg cut in half or like a really comically oversized sort of contact lens and put that under your eyelid, which keeps it just domed and round. Um, the humerus jelly in your, in your eye will start to, the, the bitter's jelly will start to sort of sink and mm-hmm. lose depth, which will, will make your eye collapse, which would be sort of, right. uh, indented like a, like I said, like a fish at the meat market. Right. Yeah. It's extremely troubling to people to see like a closed eye that's just sort of deflated. So we put these little things under there. So, so that it's an illusion, really. They're not going to oh, lift yeah. your eye. <laughs> I don't even know right. Gonna... Right. <laughs> but, uh, I don't like to use plastics in my work. So what I do is warm a little bit of mortuary wax in my hand and I, I roll it into like a leaf shape to place in there. Oh, that's great. I like that. Yeah. And uh, we, I'm sure you know from your time as an EMT, when a, mm-hmm. when a person dies, the, the eyes are open, the mouth is open. That's, oh, yeah. the natural, that's the natural state of your muscles. Yes. So anytime in a movie when someone like smoothed the eyelids down, that did not happen. No. <laughs> no. Oh, that's an alive person. Yes. Um, but uh, we will take a suture and insert it into the muscle just inside your lower lip and slip it up behind the muscle behind your upper lip and run it up through one nostril and then through the septum and back down through the other nostril. Oh, wow. Made a loop, right? Yeah. And then tie it in a little bow and tuck the bow between your lips. Um, oh. That way it won't fall open or be disturbing to anyone because your tongue will start to discolor shortly after death. And right. That- always bothersome to people so um i tend to go back and pull those things out before disposition i don't like to leave anything like that in but it's yeah it is better for families i think to not have to see those those sort of grim depictions of death sure being being real about death and being positive about death doesn't have to mean taking away this sort of final image of your loved one as something grisly you don't want to have that no want your loved ones to feel as though you're at peace, even though those are the natural realities of death. So that's what your embalmer does. That's what your mortician does. Their job is to just make sure that your loved ones aren't traumatized. That's, that's the that's whole gist. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the whole thing. <laughs> it's not about chemicals. It's not about whatever somebody told you. It's, it's literally just that. That's our whole job. Yeah. And I, and sure. Oh no, go ahead. Totally. Sometimes it totally does involve chemicals. Sometimes people really want to be well-preserved. They have to be stored for months at a time. Like right. places like Michigan, they can't bury in the winter. You're going to be stored for months up there. Right. If a person is donated to science for like dissection, we heavily embalm them so that they'll last for at least one year uh, because students will work with the same body throughout their whole time in gross anatomy. Right. And then they're cremated, cremated after, of course. But um, if you're autopsied, you'll likely be uh, embalmed chemically. If um, if there was an extreme trauma that we have to reconstruct, mm-hmm. we're likely to embalm you for very specific reasons. Um, for your listeners, I don't want to. This will be a grisly one, so strap in. Okay. Uh, I did get to assist on a on a service. I guess this was last year, year before 
several young people, high school, barely out of high school, um, were killed in a car accident. Mm-hmm. They creamed a very large vehicle that stopped short, basically, and they went underneath it. Mm. Most of the funeral homes in the area just simply declined to attempt giving an open casket to any of these kids. And it was just like, right. we make them a call and call it a day. Yeah. And they, you know, there's nothing more challenging just from, and I hope no one listening thinks I'm being cold or callous, just from a purely technical standpoint, just as, as a person who likes their job and likes doing it well, there's nothing more challenging than receiving like a bag of miscellaneous remains you Ooh. have to vote. It's like the world's worst jigsaw puzzle. Filled yeah. with <laughs> we probably spent a combined total of like 36 hours with tweezers, like pulling shards of windshield glass out right. of these. Oh. And then like you've got multiple embalming tables where we're sorting the pieces out, trying to figure out which ones go to which person. This sounds horrible. I'm so sorry. No, but no, I continue. It's, it's, uh, you're getting calls from like a crying mother who just wants to see them one more time. Sure. You know, and you're trying to figure this out and imagine the difference between sewing together two chicken breasts, for example, and sewing together two pieces or like two baseball gloves. Right. Right. That's that's a terrible example, but I think you take my point that like drop, firm is important. So being able to um, embalm these remains, one, preserved them for the amount of time we needed them to be preserved so that we could reassemble them. And two, made them dry and firm enough that we could reassemble them. Because we put tens of thousands of stitches into those kids. Yeah. And we did not even have usable bone structure. It's like Oh my gosh behind the scenes where it's like what can we like we need to take this model and carve a skull <laughs> to put oh in it oh my gosh we have this one bad photograph that they gave us like please give your funeral people good photos yeah got recent ones where we can see their face um so we're trying to sort of gauge what their skull shape was to put into this form we're trying to like we have to build sort of an articulated form out of like most people will probably use pipes and things. I prefer um, biodegradable objects. So I use a lot of wooden doweling in these sorts of circumstances, Mm -hmm. which I have to wrap over and over and over with linen to build up the shape of the body. If the bones have been crushed, Imagine like a this like really terrible sculpture project in high school. That's kind of yeah. what you're doing. You have to taxidermy this, <laughs> this right. skin bag around and make it look like a person. And we gave every single one of those children an open casket, by the way. Oh, my gosh. That would not have been possible without embalming. Right. It sometimes is necessary. Yeah. Yeah. If that's... Necessary is the key here. Right. But at least you went in there and and did that for them. That's I can't imagine the the man hours. I hate that word too. The hours it took to uh, to do that and the expertise. We worked but. from 
from like a Thursday on into Monday, day and night on that three people. Yeah. Going to say, how does that affect you and affect the, uh, you know, the people in the funeral? There's got to be times where even though you've done this a thousand times, it, it, it hits you. It's always hard every yeah. time. And if you say that it isn't, you're like, you're a shell of a human with no feelings. <laughs> True. It, that's, that's the thing, right? Like the job is about carrying other people's grief and bereavement. Yeah. That's all job. And uh, for those of you listening, it's such a difficult job that there's literally a psychological disorder named after us. Like we have our own oh, <laughs> mental wow. health. It's called funeral director's fatigue, but mm -hmm. the correct term is um, compassion fatigue. Oh, wow. It's you are always 100% of the time in this position of compassion surrounded by grieving people. So you're always yeah. holding space for grief. And even when I'm not working, I'm getting messages in the middle of the night from strangers who are like, my loved one just died and I didn't know who to message, but I read your book. Can I talk to you? And that's, that's just my whole life. Mm. And kind of an amusing anecdote coming back around to the beginning because just the nature of the pandemic and the nature of my life. Sure. I've been doing all of this as volunteer work all of the time I've been doing it. And I've never received a penny of income, which is fine. I, it, it's worth doing either way. Right. I don't make income from my book. I've yet to see a single penny of like royalties <laughs> thing. That's just not a thing. And like pagan authors don't make much anyway. I think the, like, right. The average is like $2,000 over the life of a book. It's like what sure. you might bring home. So it's like, I'm also dealing with, wow, I am deeply impoverished. Like, this I, is just, yeah. Like, why is everything terrible? Right. That's why I keep those, those sweet, sweet donate links at the bottom of my blog posts and on yes. the header of my website. Like when you go there and buy stuff from my shop or donate, like those direct my life really really specifically directly impact my life because every single time it happens it's like oh i can pay this bill or i can go oh, buy right. sure. <laughs> that's so huge for me it really is and we'll put those same links in the show notes so uh make sure you guys check out the show notes i uh you were just sort of talking about how does it uh, how does it affect me as a person though mm -hmm. i always think about this one experience and it was situation while I was volunteering um, a year or so ago and it was a circumstance I'm, I'm going to have to change some things around because I don't, I don't want to sure, sure. privacy but is a circumstance in which a, a child had died in a domestic violence situation mm. and the one of the parents was truly devastated um, because it was something the other parents had done while they right. were out and mm. I did not share a language with this person, but I now know exactly what the fuck yeah. my son, my son sounds like in that language. And I will never mm. erase it from my mind. Mm. They could not afford a burial. They, they couldn't have afforded the barest of burials. This, and they're also dealing with their spouse having been arrested. And it's sure. a lot of, a lot all at one time. And, the only choice that they had was to donate this child's body. Mm. So here you are standing in, in a space where it's a learning environment, of course, but it's also a situation where, you know, you're the last place this 
this is not where this person wants their child to find out. They want to plan the funeral they want and they want to have, I'm going to fucking make myself cry. This is the worst. They want what they want in this terrible hour and they can't have it. They can't have anything be right. And they just, (laughs) yeah, my, my twins were the same age that this child was. On the day that child died, my twins were the same age. Mm. Yeah, that, that makes it really hit home even more. And the the child in question had curly hair, exactly like one of my twins. Mm. And there are all these moments where it's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut these curls off into an envelope and mail them back to the mother. They're they're gonna want these, and and it's just yeah, it's stating right and yeah. I remember. The, there's a ritual in my book where I talk about uh, prep room last rites and gave them this ritual. Sorry. I performed this ritual for them. I remember sitting on the floor of the body freezer with the door closed, just holding this little kid and crying mm. until tears froze on my cheek because I just, I, I couldn't bear it. Yeah. Just knowing how they died and, and seeing the pain in their mother's face and seeing I, I just couldn't imagine making the choice to have to to donate your child's body to a medical institution after that tragedy because you couldn't yeah. do anything else. It was just all so cruel. And yeah. I got home and drove four hours because that's how far I live from the lab that I that I work with. And this whole drive home in silence, just thinking about that pain and just holding it in the car with me and. I got home and when I opened the door, my my twins saw me. And they were so excited and they, you know, mommy's yeah. home and they run up and they hug me and I'm picking them up and that was they've never felt heavier, right? Sure. Just knowing that on that day I had been a mother to both the living and the dead and absolutely. It's just it's too much some days. Oh, I I, I can't even imagine. <laughs> You have to have so much more of an intimate connection than I had to as an EMT. We get there, we can detach easier. We're not there trying to make them look beautiful for the family or piece them together. We're, we just, either something we can do or there's something we can't. And it was still too much sometimes. So I, I can't even imagine. It feels like sometimes the only thing that it's like the only thing that keeps you going is is that pain you saw in someone's face and knowing that making something work is the only gift you can give them, right? Like, right. Like you don't want to spend 36 hours sewing together hunks of indiscernible meat. This is awful. Yeah. It's horrible. horrible. And your fingers are bleeding because you got into windshield glass through your gloves and you're like, mm. oh, well, my bloodborne pathogen training. And it's yeah, just, right keep going because you saw the pain and you heard it in their voice. And it's hard. It it really is hard. And I do think in a lot of ways, I don't know. I think there's a lot of weirdly like gendered expectations as well. Like 
if you're in any kind of funeral environment, if you even vaguely have the appearance of womanhood, it's like, oh, you, you have to embalm the baby. I don't want to. <laughs> right. Oh, thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh. Oh. Or like you find yourself embalming or preparing all of the the female decedents because your funeral director told you that it it didn't feel appropriate for them. So you have to stand in that cold room and like uh, talk to yourself. What the hell did that mean? Like right, right. What weird thoughts have you had that you don't even want to do this right now? I mean, yeah, it makes like so. Uh, why is it uncomfortable? What exactly are you uncomfortable with? Right. Yeah, that's. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you you see here, end up knowing things that you never imagined you would have to know. So true. Sort of like children are hard to begin with, right? Like. Yeah. With an adult person, I mean, you're an EMT. You oh. understand sort of the technical. Sure. You understand the system here. We do like a closed system circulation. Right. Lift the the sternoclastoid sheath or whatever, and and do a forward and reverse injury, right? So we do drainage at the same point. Right. I just bored everyone listening to death. <laughs> no. <laughs> but with children, you can't really do that, right? The vascular system won't hold up to the pressure. Right. We can only key the pressure down so much. Yeah. So what we have to do is open the chest and put our hand under their heart. Mm-hmm. Hold it in our hand while we manually inject through it. Mm. And when you're looking at a, a little stillborn baby or, or someone yeah. three-year-old and you're imagining your own child at home and it just, I, I just don't think people recognize what that feels like. Yeah. I, I know with us, you, you reach this point where you, you find yourself just turning off to it more and more and more. And I, I, I got out of it to a point where I realized I'm like, I, I'm, I'm no longer have the compassion that I need to have to do this job. And I don't want to be that person. I want to get out of it before it just makes me turn off completely. Me too. That's, that's, that's one difference I think between say EMTs, for example, and death care work, because we just can't do that because no. we, have, we have to directly interact with the bereaved. Right. We have to receive those remains. We have to hear their requests. We have to do those consultations where they plan the funeral. We have to help them write the obituary. We have to prepare those remains. We have to be at that funeral, at that graveside service. We're doing all of those things at every step of the way. So for several days in a row, you are part of that family and you are of their pain and you are the agent responsible for carrying that pain. Like That's your job. Mm. Yeah, it's tough. I can't imagine that because you, you know, like you are saying, it's, it's so much more of a uh, emotional and spiritual investment. It is, and it it's it's very intimate in its own way. I think, and from a magical perspective, I think it's such a huge gift, really, because you can you can carry that right where they can't. The yeah. shape of grief fills them up. You're bigger than that grief right now. If we're going back to the Tonka model, but right. 
that's that's that gift you can give them. And I think if we're sort of looking at magical traditions that do things like, say, a drawing down where you're responsible for sort of wrangling a deity within yourself, whether you understand it or not, right? It's mm-hmm. that same question of taking something into yourself that doesn't belong to you right. and sort of manhandling it into shape, even if you don't understand it. Right. Yeah. The book that I'm working on now, I talk a lot about in necromancy, I think has a, there's a real misunderstanding about what it is. hundred percent. I think yeah. we lose sight of the fact that for most of history, a necromancer or what we would call a necromancer was in service to their community, right? They were very right. service oriented. And I think necromancy is not about what the dead can do for us, but about what we can do for the dead. Right. And I don't want to dig too deep into those topics because I've kept you on here too long, I'm sure. <laughs> no, it's, it's, uh, and we'll definitely have you on again too. Talk more about necromancy and the things that people don't understand, you know, that I, I think they all kind of have a Hollywood idea of what magic in regards to the dead can be, could be, and is. And it's, uh, it's far different. Yeah. You could do that maybe when the other book is. Yeah. That'd be super fun. But in this, in this text, something that I talk about a lot is that you have sort of different categories of dead and, and I'm, I'm being super narrow folks. So I hope you'll like, you'll bear with me and listen to me more here. But if we're talking about sort of spirits that are stuck here and I, I don't like that expression, but right. For all intents and purposes, one of your categories would be the Nansapulti or, or the, uh, the unburied and the unlamented right. people who did not funerary rites. They had no one to mourn them, those sorts of things. So I wrote in this book a drawing down of grief. And the purpose of the ritual is to draw into yourself the feelings of grief that that deceased person's loved ones would have felt at the time of their death. Right. So it's not as glamorous as, say, a drawing down the moon where you get to play horned god for a little bit. Definitely not that glamorous. (laughs) <laughs> but if you can, if you can sit there and hold space for pain and to let this deceased person know that if nothing else, you cared enough to hold it for them so that they can have been mourned and move over to peace. What a gift. Right. For everyone listening, this is why I'm such a huge fucking dork because I have to like laugh away the rest of my life because I, just, <laughs> I don't all the time. <laughs> the rest of my life, like, eating fruity pebbles and playing D and D that's like everything else. <laughs> I, my needs are met right there. <laughs> Especially when you have little kids, you can like plop down on the couch and watch Pokemon with them. That's what yes. we were doing earlier. Yeah. You got to out that song. I got to be the very best. Like no one. Oh ever yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. I know you that song. Yes. Oh. I love the Pokemon cartoon because it, it has two theme songs. It just leaned in really hard and, Played them back to back. I don't. Why did they make? That I don't understand. No, I don't but know. It's well, that is fantastic. And what tell us? We've had you on here forever. We're taking up your whole day now. 
<laughs> but so I want to give you a chance to uh, to give some shout outs where people can can find you and find your books and uh, and uh, how they can get in touch with you and buy her books. <laughs> I uh, for those of you listening, I said this uh, to your your fine host here earlier, but I'm spectacularly bad at promoting myself. And in fact, I really don't like that term. I'm I'm not promoting anything. I don't have anything that I hope that you'll go out and like spend your money on. That's not who I am. But if you're trying to find me, if you look for Mortellus or a crow and the dead, you'll find me at pretty much any social media. I'm on Twitter, but I mostly talk about stuff like the fact that our cell phones are more powerful than what we sent people to the moon with and right. use them to get like government funded shit gifts. So like, it's probably not worth following me on Twitter. So there's, <laughs> there's that. And my website at mortellus.com. I have a store there where you can buy ethically responsibly sourced funeral type materials for your magic. There's stuff on there that you probably read in a grimoire one time and thought, how do people get these? I'm, I'm probably how they get these. So <laughs> go check that stuff out. I also am a huge dork for making things like soap and candles. So I have lots of just fun Ooh. stuff. And all of those things support my work. And those candles, I use uh, sliced up pieces of recycled caskets for the wicks. So if you like oh, cool. snap crack wood wicks but you're also like a spooky spooky person for death stuff you probably those are for you so oh that's cool yeah but thank you so much for coming on mortalis i uh it's really been an honor to have you on here and we'll definitely have you on for the new book because that could be a whole nother two three <laughs> hours to talk about there you're you have so many cool things to to discuss so we'll definitely be in touch well, it's, it's been a pleasure talking to you, really, and I've truly enjoyed it. And I, I hope that your listeners will reach out and let me know that that they found me through you. I like knowing where where people heard about me and stuff. Yes. Join my extremely miniature like fan base in our like quest to share dorky death memes on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, it is a great group. There's there's definitely some groups on Facebook that are stressful and you, you guys have a really nice group. So I, I, I love seeing the posts in there. I but I, to my spouse is like, how do we have hundreds of people in this group? And there's never been an argument or like, everybody's just so nice. It's a great space. Right. Oh, it is. It is. It's one of the few really positive spaces on Facebook. So if you're on Facebook, definitely get over there and check it out. And Mortalis, hang on after uh, we hang up here and we'll talk a little bit more. And everyone else, I will see you after the break. Bye, everybody. Hey, Bizarros, welcome back. Thank you for tuning in and listening, and a big thank you for Mortellus. It was a real honor having them here, and I'm, I learned a lot from this one. And I, her book was really touching to me. Uh, as many of you know, I was an EMT, and I discuss it in the show. And so being around death for so much of my life before that as an archaeologist doing grave 
excavations. It hit a lot. Of, it hit home, and uh, it's definitely a subject that's very dear to my heart and that I take very seriously. And uh, yeah, it's it's a great book. So if you can get your hands, uh, if your hands on the copy, if you can get your hands on the copy, and if I can master the English language, you should definitely get out and get a copy. Um, where to get it and how to get it will be in the show notes. So definitely check there. And uh, yeah. There was there was some tough parts of the show, so I hope you guys got through it. Maybe you shed a tear or two. I know I did. And uh, more than anything, I hope that it just opens your eyes to the different possibilities and ways that we can take care of our remains as well as take care of the the people we love while they're grieving. So I I, I think there's a lot of lot to be gained in this book so even if you're not a pagan practitioner even if you're not in the witchcraft or or anything that you would consider the occult the book is worth reading because it is full of very important knowledge for the future and understanding death and funerary practices so definitely get out there and grab it uh otherwise check us out on youtube uh check me out on on uh, Google Voice, uh, we have a phone number now, as I mentioned in the opening. It's 302-709-1209. So give us a call. Leave a message. Let me know someone's actually listening. Um, I don't know how country codes work on that, but uh, I'm sure Google will tell you. And you can do that right through your Google account if you have a Google account. Otherwise, just dial the number or use whatever app out there that lets you make calls without being charged ridiculous amounts of money but uh leave a message and maybe i'll play it on another show uh, and we still have a whole bunch of shows coming up and planned for you that you are going to love that'll be coming up for uh august without them go rightly and then september and Oct- big show in october being planned so that should be a lot of fun and otherwise yeah listen subscribe that really helps the show and I'll see you guys on the other side. Be healthy and stay safe, Bizarros. Bye. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Smoking on gas, got me slung. Chasing Z's, chasing Z's. I've been high up off my ass. Magic beans, magic beans. Lying strong on the street. Oh, what you mean? What you mean? Grab control and major time. Do you Smoking on gas, got me slung Chasing Z's, chasing Z's I've been high up off my ass Magic beans, magic beans Flying solo, Mr. Dolo What you need, what you need Ground control to major time Do you read, do you read yeah. Well, I'm back in the game and I'm feeling myself Quick level up, now I'm building myself Every day, never taking breaks, killing myself